Today's episode is sponsored by Alone in the Dark. The highly anticipated new reimagination by Pieces Interactive and THQ Nordic. Play as Edward Carnby or Emily Hartwood to explore your environments, fight monsters, solve puzzles, and uncover the true secret of Dorsetto Manor. Our favorite heroes are brought to life by Hollywood stars Jodie Comer of Killing Eve and David Harbour of Stranger Things, who lend not only their voices, but their appearance and their formidable acting skills to the brave protagonists. Experience a deep psychological story that goes beyond the realms of the imaginable, all dreamed up by Mikhail Hedberg, cult horror writer of Soma and Amnesia. The team at Pieces Interactive is supported by monster designer and legendary Guillermo del Toro collaborator Guy Davis, as well as doom jazz legend Jason Conan, who provides his eerie and haunting melodies for the right atmosphere. Alone in the Dark is available March 20th on PS5, Xbox Series XS, and PC. Pre-order your copy now and escape into the dark. Good morning, afternoon, or evening, and welcome to the Bloody Disgusting Network. The following show is just horrifying. Beware. Sheriff, you're not cheating on your wife if you eat my lemon square. Your lemon squares taste like ass. Welcome back to Horror Queers. We're talking cha-cha heels. We're talking I couldn't possibly eat spaghetti. Do I look Italian? And we're talking about giving the hairdo back. And I'm Joe. And I'm Trace. And we're talking I've got a knife in my pocket. I'm going to cut you up after class. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, it's good. But also, I left you the best line and you didn't use it. So now I'm going to just say it anyway. I wouldn't suck your lousy dick if I was suffocating and there was oxygen in your balls. (laughs) Spoken by a 14-year-old character, no less. I love it. This movie is such a delight. (laughs) I'm I'm really glad to hear you say that because yeah, I had no idea what you were going to think of this. Uh, But everyone, we are discussing John Waters' Pink Flamingos, smack dab in the middle of our camp month. and uh, Really? That's not the movie we're talking about. Oh my god, what what did I just say? Pink Flamingos. Oh my god. (laughs) I was like, oh, uh, I prepared the wrong movie. <laughs> I am, no. I, 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 I watched the right movie, I promise. Um, okay, <laughs> sorry. <clears throat> uh, and yes, everyone, because we are discussing John Waters' female trouble smack dab in the middle of our camp month. And, you know, what better example of camp than that of John Waters, Joe? Oh my god. Bad taste galore. It's so enjoyable. Oh, I'm so excited to hear your thoughts on this, but before we get that, I think we should bring in our guest, who I think is going to really help us with the John Watersness of it all, or, I don't know, fun stuff. So, <laughs> everyone, he is a film professor at UC Denver who, on top of playing a prominent role in the Nightmare on Elm Street 2 documentary, Scream Queen, My Nightmare on Elm Street, also wrote the book The Revolting Child in Horror Cinema, Youth Rebellion and Queer Spectatorship. You may also remember him from our episode on William Friedkin's Cruising, which also happened to be our 100th episode. Please welcome back Andrew Scahill. 
Hey, everybody. How are you? Uh, here, well, let me see what I'm bringing. Uh, I'm going to bring house robbing, new gowns, mm-hmm. murder, scars, fingerprint, lashes. <laughs> <laughs> the whole kit and caboodle, basically. <laughs> here for it. <laughs> Well, welcome back, Andy. And you Thank actually, you. You really wanted to discuss this film. So may I ask, why? Well, uh, you know, I, John Waters is such a, an interesting figure. I think he, he reaches back into the more like guerrilla tradition of American underground cinema. But we see in this film, he's kind of has a, a mainstream sensibility, or at least it could be there. So mm-hmm. it's a really interesting one to kind of grab within his filmography, I think. Mm-hmm. So what is your relationship with Waters? Have you have you seen his entire filmography or have you just kind of seen like a, a random selection throughout? You know, I'll say a random selection. Um, you know, I, I, looking at the list here, I've seen seven of them, which is I think is pretty okay. good. Yeah, okay. th- there's only 11 that you can find. So that's, that's <laughs> right, more than half. Right. Um, and, and some of them, you know, I, you know, what's funny is that later in his filmography, I, I think they get less interesting to me, like Pecker, Dirty Shame. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I really like this period. That, that we're looking at now. Um, I, polyester is my absolute favorite of his. It's one I like to teach uh, mm. and, and uh, to give them a look at queer camp. Uh, and, it's, and it's really good because it pairs so well with the, you know what he's parodying, the, the Douglas Sirk films from the 50s. Right. So that, that's it. as a film scholar, that's the one that I usually go to. Well, that's right. interesting, too, because I mean, he's definitely parodying those mm-hmm. films with polyester. But in this one, he's more paying homage to like uh-huh. the exploitation and melodrama films he's seen in the 60s. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I think there's other ones, too. I think this is a fun little riff on The Bad Seed. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Who had two minutes until Andy brought in The Bad Seed? <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. Exactly. <laughs> it's on my brain constantly. So, yes. <laughs> All the time. Well, and so, Joe, because I, I know that this is a first time watch for you. Uh, and we've, we've discussed, like, in passing John Waters before on the show. But what is your relationship with Waters? Yeah, so I'm kind of like Andy. I've seen part of his filmography, but not the whole thing. Probably a few less titles. I got exposed to him when I was in university and I was studying film. So Pink Flamingos was very much on the syllabus <laughs> in terms of, oh, this is what bad taste and art trash and exploitation looks like. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's different because Waters has a very distinct cinematic view. Like, He doesn't make movies like anybody else, but he clearly knows what he's doing. He's not just making bad movies. He's making bad movies with a purpose. (laughs) And I find that, I don't know, there's something so respectable about that. (laughs) And he's also very erudite. Like, Mm. he knows what he's doing and he can tell you about it. But also, (laughs) he delights in the fact that you find him distasteful. Mm. Mm-hmm. Very much so, and I, I, I poured through the Criterion release of Female Trouble this weekend, and it, it he's all over it. And his commentary is just—I mean, both the actual commentary when watching the film and just watching him being interviewed—is mm-hmm. kind of just delightful. Like he's so candid, so sweet, but you know, is a, a very well aware of who he is and mm-hmm. what his public persona is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I love that when I was looking up reviews for this film, which are mostly positive, mm-hmm. he delighted in the fact that he made Rex Reed uncomfortable because he <laughs> yep. knew that it would actually be better for the film because mm-hmm. he could sell a bad review. Mm-hmm. Just like, yep. yeah, that's John Waters. He's savvy and he knows exactly what he's doing. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, so for me, it's it's interesting. So b- prior to the pandemic, I had only seen Serial Mom and A Dirty Shame. So I'd seen, you know, one of okay. his like more highly regarded modern films and then one of his least regarded films of all time. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> that would be A Dirty Shame for people who aren't following at home. <laughs> oh, yes, I'm sorry. A Dirty Shame is the one that everyone considers his worst film. <laughs> really? Is that it? Yeah, well, I don't disagree. I will say, if you're going to seek out A Dirty Shame, make sure you just buy the NC-17 DVD because mm. I think every streaming version is the R-rated cut and John Waters has disowned that version. Oh, mm. wow. Okay. But yeah, and so at the beginning of the pandemic, though, I had a friend and he was like, oh, I would love to introduce you to more John Waters. So he did, and he showed me Female Trouble first, and then we watched Pink Flamingos, and then we just basically, like, I went in order from there on out. Um, I watched Desperate Living, Polyester, uh, Hairspray, Crybaby, Serial Mom, Pecker, Cecil B. Demented, and yeah, I rewatched Dirty Shame. And then I finally just went back and watched Multiple Maniacs, but um, I will say, for his filmography, I kind of divided it into two halves. It's the pre-polyester and the post-polyester, because a lot of the post-polyester is going to be his more studio films that he, where he's not able to be quite as tasteless as he is in his earlier work. <laughs> mm-hmm. Which is not to say that he ever totally loses it, <laughs> but oh, no. he is making more studio-ish friendly films. Right. Like, I think if you watch Serial Mom and then you go back and you watch Female Trouble, you're like, oh, like, you can tell they're made by the same person, but right. content-wise, they are a bit different. Just a bit. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and the sound recording gets better. Oh, boy. Oh, <laughs> very much so. Very much so. I, I will say, though, that, I mean, my, my personal favorite early waters is Desperate Living. Mm. My pa- my personal favorite later waters is Cecil B. Demented. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think that one's fun. Oh, it's better if you know the movie industry, I feel like. Mm-hmm. But there's so many jokes in there where I'm like, oh, I feel like if I showed this to, like, Joe Blow, they wouldn't understand half of these jokes. Right, right. Mm. It's tough to say that there's a film film student humor, but that's how it feels, you know? Yeah, yes. very much yes. so. So, okay. Well, with Female Trouble, why don't, why don't we just go into this, okay? Mm. So let's do a quick primer um, for any listeners who may not be as familiar with John Waters and his, uh, I'm going to say comedy troupe, I guess. Mm. And that that is called the Dreamlanders. So uh, the Dreamlanders are the cast and crew of regulars whom John Waters has used in his film. So, I mean, it's kind of like I liken it to the Christopher Guest troupe, although, you know, doing a bit different things. Yeah, you know, I, I, I liken it to to like Andy Warhol's factory, you know, yeah. so sort of like outcasts and you know, junkies and drag queens that just sort of collected around him. And, you know, John Waters, like Andy Warhol, just loved discarded people. Right. Yes. Yeah. Mm hmm. And the name Dreamlanders comes from his production company, Dreamland Productions. And yeah, so many of the original Dreamlanders were friends of Waters from his native Baltimore, Maryland. And as you don't know, of course, pretty much every single one of Waters' films are filmed and set in Baltimore, Maryland. Mm-hmm. The early members of the Dreamlanders included his bad suburban kids he knew from Towson and Lutherville, uh, one of whom is Mary Vivian Pierce, who plays Donna Dasher in Female Trouble. This crowd was drawn to downtown Baltimore by the gay scene, which where Divine introduced Waters to David Lockery, who plays Donald Dasher in Female Trouble. Then they started to include the denizens of the Fells Point neighborhood, where Waters' art director, Vincent Perenio, had rented an industrial space that once housed a commercial bakery with seven other Maryland Institute graduates to use as a cheap studio and a living space. So this kind of became like the HQ for the Dreamlanders. Mm-hmm. They called it the Hollywood Bakery, and this is where people like <laughs> Mink Stoll, who plays Taffy, and Susan Lowe, who plays uh, the, the salon receptionist Vicky, and whose baby is the one that Dawn gives birth to in the film, join the Dreamlanders. Oh my god, that story. <laughs> Too funny. <laughs> Wild, right? So, 
Although Waters has attempted to include many of the same actors and production team members in every single film, not every Dreamlander is used in each of his films. This is frequently the result of the death of an actor, as was the case with David Lockery, who died in 1977 while intoxicated on PCP, Edith Massey, who died of complications from lymphoma and diabetes in 1984, and Divine, who was supposed to be in Crybaby before he died of heart failure in 1988. Other actors like Patty Hearst and Ricky Lake have, been, have not been used in every film, but appear occasionally, especially in that period of the 90s. Typically, Waters would discover an actor and continue to use them in subsequent films. The only members to appear in all 12 of Waters' feature-length films are Mink Stoll, who's in every single feature-length film, and Mary Vivian Pierce, who's appeared in every feature-length film and all of his short films from the 1960s. <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah. Impressive. You also have Pat Moran, who started acting in a lot of his films, but then moved over to uh, casting director and production manager, starting with polyester and moving forward from there. Okay, so let's go into Female Trouble now. So shot on a tiny budget of $25,000, which, by the way, was Waters' largest budget at the time. Oh my god. <laughs> it was produced with many returning members and cast and crew uh, from Waters' previous feature-length exploits, which would be 1969's Mondo Trasho, which... To my knowledge, has never been released. Uh, I believe there is a bootleg on YouTube, but supposedly it would cost a million dollars to get the music rights approved for this film, which is why it's uh, never been released. Yeah, that'll do it. Music yeah. will fuck you up every time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, then we would move on to 1970s Multiple Maniacs and 1972's Pink Flamingos. Now, that last one, Pink Flamingos, is it's the most famous or even notorious film of Waters' <laughs> career. So... If you're asking why we're not covering that one and we're covering Female Trouble instead, um, honestly, that was kind of my personal preference. Uh, I think that Female Trouble, all things considered, is a much more accessible film than, Fem than Pink Flamingos is, but your mileage may vary. So if you're curious, <laughs> go see it. <laughs> well, I would also argue that Female Trouble has a bit more of a horrific aspect, so yeah, it's a better fit for our podcast in particular. Like, right. Pink Flamingos to me is really about just trying to shock you with its exploitation mm. and bad taste. Like, folks mm -hmm. mostly will know that one because Divine eats a piece of dog <laughs> shit, which is real. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, cool, that's what you need to know. It's like, bad and Edith Massey eats a bunch of eggs in a crib. Yes, which it was so funny because I had actually seen Pink Flamingos after I saw Female Trouble. And so when we had that joke in Female Trouble where she's like, I don't want any eggs, mm -hmm. I didn't get it. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, I think you're right. And of course, we've had an endless list of requests to cover Serial Mom one day. So we mm. will get there. Yeah, that was the obvious one, which is why we didn't do it. I, I just I think we need to get him. We have to start with like, this is where he comes from. I think it's really mm. important to start here. Yeah. But yeah, so... Uh, I do want to point out that Waters thought that the best thing for him to do would be to not try to top Pink Flamingos in terms of the content and audacity of the film, because if he did, then he wouldn't be where he is today. So if the content of Female Trouble was a bit much for you, I have some not so great news about Pink Flamingos. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, as with his other films, Waters played an outsized creative role, Now, in this case serving as producer director, screenwriter, cinematographer, and co-editor, and also pinning the lyrics to the film's title song, Female Trouble. Again, like Waters' other films, Female Trouble was shot in and around his native Baltimore, but this movie is largely an indoor affair. Uh, the unique production design afforded by the aforementioned Dreamlander, Vincent Perenio, created Dawn's apartment in a condemned suite above a friend's store. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be pulling a few quotes from Ed Halter's article, Spare Me Your Morals, which is included in Criterion's 2018 Blu-ray release of the film. Um, and just, you know, regarding the film's overall sets and production design, he says this. 
The clever aesthetization of budgetary necessity has its roots in the 60s underground movies of Andy Warhol, Andy, mm-hmm. and brothers George and Mike Kuchar, all of whose work inspired Waters to take up filmmaking. Warhol, the Kuchars, and the rest of their generation, however, were more interested in dissolving the boundary between art and life, and their films have a tendency to fold back into historical records of their own creation. Rather than giving female trouble a documentary feel, Waters' use of real-life backgrounds only heightens the extreme artifice of the film's dramaturgy, dialogue, and plot. Here and there, Waters sneaks in many homages to his favorite movies. Dawn's go-to dancing outfit recalls the opening nightclub sequence of Faster Pussycat, Kill Kill. Mm. The Mm. arrangement of Concetta and Chiclet's bouffanted heads while they're sitting on either side of Dawn's bed is a direct reference to Valley of the Dolls. So it's things where, I mean, I don't know, me personally, I'm kind of like, oh, I'm not going to catch these things because I wasn't a child of the 60s and I also Mm. haven't seen a lot of these films. But it does kind of also give that Tarantino feel, right? Of where he's doing a lot of homages and pastiche while still making something his very own beast. Right, right. Yeah, it's almost like it's almost like he's making a, a version of that film kind of like unfettered by censorship. Oh, very right. much so. Very <laughs> much so. <laughs> so this is all kind of funny, though, because Waters is on record as saying that he wanted his movies to look like Hollywood movies, but of course they never mm. really did. And, of course, you can see the poor production values all over the place in something like Female Trouble, but that's part of his early work's charms. You know, he had everyone yell in his movies because he had terrible sound. Uh, he, he's <laughs> saying, it's not their bad acting, it's my bad directing, or good directing, <laughs> you decide. <laughs> um, he also wrote the longest lines for everyone, which was not only a struggle for Edith Massey, who he at mm. one point had to threaten to kill her cat if she didn't get her lines <laughs> right. Christ. But also for everyone else, because there was almost no coverage. So when someone was giving a three-page single-space monologue, if they messed up once, it was cut, start over. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, he's worked with Edith Massey before. He should, he should know her line recall, not the best. But it is funny, though, because there are parts of the movie where you can see her, like the, the, the gears working in her head. Like, what's right. my next line? What's my next line? <laughs> yeah. Whereas apparently Mink Stoll was like a consummate professional and everyone on set kind of hated her because she would show up and know all of her lines. And they'd be like, fuck you, bitch. Well, and I will tell you, he, he clearly knows that about Mink Stoll because his next film is 1977's Desperate Living, which which opens with possibly the funniest 10 minutes of John Waters' filmography. But it is just Mink Stoll delivering a 10-minute soliloquy, (laughs) just absolutely hysterical, running around her house, screaming at nothing. And it is a lot, and it is hilarious. (laughs) So, um, Female Trouble was written by Waters as a vehicle for Divine, a.k.a. Harris Glenn Milstead, the biggest player in his Dreamland Productions micro-studio. With him in mind, he created the character of Dawn Davenport, whose look was based on the woman in Diane Arbus's famous 1966 photograph called A Young Brooklyn Family on a Sunday Outing. The film is structured to show off Divine's formidable range of comedic and even dramatic talent, and, as Waters wrote in his 1981 essay collection, Shock Value, since the character of Don Davenport turns from teenage delinquent to mugger, prostitute, unwed mother, child abuser, fashion model, nightclub entertainer, murderess, and jailbird, mm-hmm. I felt at last Divine had a role she could sink her teeth into. <laughs> wow, women really can do it all. <laughs> And for Don's journey, he took inspiration from malign genres and drive-in cheapies, Hollywood tearjerkers, and boob tube soap operas. But for for Don herself, think something like Mildred Pierce or uh, Cirque's Imitation of Life. Mm -hmm. There you go. Which Mm -hmm. would come back into play later. Absolutely. Very much so. (laughs) So, okay. 
This film has a bit of an interesting release history, which is not something that's uncommon with the films we cover on this podcast, but the initial 16mm release of this film, which was only shown in colleges, ran 92 minutes in length. And I... Was that something that was common, like, as a release strategy? Or was that more of a... Do y'all think that was, like, a... Indip- like, he's like, oh, I'm just going to put this movie in college just to see who plays it. Yeah, it's a good question. I'm not sure. I don't know the concrete answer, but I've heard of this happening... Like, it doesn't happen anymore, but I think it was kind of like an alternative film circuit because there's so many colleges around North right. America. So mm-hmm. you could make a little bit of money, but it was more like special event, like one night only kind of distribution. Right. Got it. And it seems in that kind of like guerrilla spirit, like you would give a single yes. to a, a college DJ. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> also, given the content of the film, I'm sure they were like, look, it's educational. <laughs> right. Well, or like, hey, this is going to resonate with the beatniks who are mm-hmm. going to school at right. this period. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I do have a release date of October 4th, 1974. And I don't know if this is the first like college screening of the film or if this is the first theatrical screening of the film. But I do know that when the film was blown up to 35 millimeters and shown theatrically, it was cut down to 89 minutes. And this version was the only version seen in the United States for many years. And so if you actually found this movie on DVD, VHS, whenever that hit the market, um, it would be this much cut down 89 minute version. Because as the version we all should have watched is the 97 minute original cut. Mm-hmm. Yep, in all its glory <laughs> and, and on, on Amazon no less good job Amazon I was go. shocked I was shocked <laughs> Amazon had the uncut one so yeah. good for y'all but you know maybe once Criterion puts it out that's the thing where it's like oh it's a real movie now <laughs> right 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 uh, I mean John Waters has four movies in the Criterion collection now mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. a fuck ton considering he's only made 11 movies right, no, I, right. trust me I, I, why they are not all on there I will never know well maybe yeah. not a dirty shame but I do like a dirty <laughs> shame <laughs> So I kind of met John Waters once in Provincetown. Um, He was on his little bicycle, uh, as he's wont to do in in Provincetown, apparently, uh, late at night. And he was riding by me. And I went, John Waters, like a fangirl. And he he went, ding, ding. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) I feel like that was an acknowledgement. We had a moment. Uh, I would, I mean, honestly, again, just watching him interviews, I'm like, I would just love to sit down and just talk to this man. This is a fascinating conversation. Oh, I've talked to him, and he is fascinating. I got to interview him for Salem Horror Fest uh, when he was doing promo for Serial Mom. So obviously I asked him about that, but... Yeah, he's he's so smart and charming, and also if he does not like your question, he will not answer it. <laughs> that's oh, fair. wait, did you ask him a question he didn't want to answer? Yeah, he was just like, "No, that's a boring question. Ask me something else." <laughs> Do you remember what it was? No, <laughs> it was just it was something kind of like a dumb and trite, and he mm. was just like, "No, you've got better questions. Ask me something else." <laughs> <laughs> it, he definitely is the in the age of give no shits. If he wasn't there already, you oh, know, even as absolutely, a young man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it was probably like, "Hey, are you ever going to make another film?" And he was just like, "Well, um. come on, give me something better." <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, you should think about what question that was so you never ask it again. There we go. I should know better. <laughs> so, the Los Angeles premiere of Female Trouble took place at the Las Palmas Theater in Hollywood. So, I'm assuming, yeah, that was probably the 89-minute cut. But I'm unsure because the Las Palmas Theater was a former, and I quote, legitimate theater that Ooh. hosted first-run films, stage shows, and even an ice skating review. But by the time Female Trouble t- uh, had screened there, it had turned into a porn theater. So... <laughs> Maybe it was the longer cut. <laughs> also, I love this well, idea that it was a legitimate theater because it played an ice skating review and then John Waters comes in. 
I know. Uh, well, <laughs> I'll show you fucking obscene. <laughs> if it wasn't, if it was the full version, it wouldn't be the only uncut thing there. Oh my god! Oh. Waka, waka, I mean, hey, waka. where's the end dick in this movie? <laughs> it's not dick. pretty dick. It's it's some of the ugliest penises I've ever seen. <laughs> you know, Gators is fine, but yes, Gators unfortunately, fine. the stand-in penis for Earls is not pretty. <laughs> no, <laughs> it looks like a medical illustration. <laughs> oh god! Um, so weirdly enough, though, a, a, a recent restoration was done to the original cut, which again runs ninety-seven minutes. Um, apparently, the the most notable addition to this ninety-seven minute version is the chase scene through the woods which I think, mm. think is when Dawn like jumps in the river and gets arrested by the cops oh interesting because <laughs> I know that Divine gets praised for doing that in full drag and mm. risking the fact that she could have been swept away by that undercurrent hmm. uh, and it was freezing cold because John Waters apparently only likes to shoot his movies in the winter but no one knows why <laughs> All right. All right, then. <laughs> <laughs> to get a raw performance yeah it know. is truly wild um, I do want to say that, that while uh, this 97-minute version has, you know, just recently come out in the United States, it is the version that played in Europe since its initial release in the 70s. Mm. So Europeans definitely have a one-up on us in the John mm. Waters department. <laughs> just one of the many things the Europeans yeah. do better. Very much so. <laughs> For reviews, yeah, as you said, Joe, this does have a very, very good reviews. But here's the thing. So we've got an 88% on Rotten Tomatoes with an average score of 7 out of 10. And then Letterboxd users have given it a score of 7.8 out of 10. But speaking about the film's reception at the time, Waters notes that while Pink Flamingos was a big hit, Female Trouble was not. Hmm. I guess at the time, he goes, it got one really good review in Variety from a critic who often reviewed porno films, but the rest <laughs> of the reviews were not so great. Hmm. Even from critics who liked Pink Flamingos, uh, they didn't know what to make of it. They didn't hate it or anything, but they were perplexed. In fact... Hmm. People saw Female Trouble after having seen Pink Flamingos and asked Waters if he had sold out. Oh my god. This is, this is a sellout? Yeah. Yeah, I, I guess because it's not as confrontational or it doesn't yeah. have as much provocative material as Pink Flamingos. He's not trying to top right. Pink Flamingos and therefore uh -huh. he sold out. Okay. Yes. Right, okay. right, right. Um, also funny, the original working title of the film was Rotten Mind, Rotten Face, but... <laughs> And uh, smart man as he is, Waters changed it because he didn't want to risk having hostile film critics using the headline, Rotten mm. Mind, Rotten Face, Rotten Movie. Mm -hmm. Fair, fair. <laughs> Joe, as you said, yes, a scathing review came from Rex Reed that was so bad, and the quote, the exact quote was, where do these people come from? Where do they go when the sun goes down? Isn't there a law or something? This was used in the film's marketing and put on I early VHS it. copies of the film. <laughs> I, I mean, love that. People should know... If you don't know who Rex Reed is as a film critic, he is a fucking dick. Like, mm. not even like, haha, he's funny. It's just like, he's a <laughs> terrible film critic, and he makes all of us look bad by association. <laughs> because he had a controversy because he, he wrote a review for a movie he had already stated he walked out of. Mm -hmm. But he also, like, I think in his review of Identity Thief, said that Melissa McCarthy looked like a human-sized uh, trash bin or something. Oh, lovely. He also uh, criticized uh, Children of a Lesser God when Marlowe Matten won the actress, oh, or of course, best actress, yeah. and said that playing a deaf a deaf person playing a deaf character wasn't really acting. Ooh, God, Lord. Dick. <laughs> Uh, well, yeah. anyway, so if you see that, um, he sucks. Good for the movie. There we go. There we go. <laughs> uh, nevertheless, as the years went on, people liked Female Trouble more and more. And Waters thinks that today it's the most popular of the Divine movies among audiences, but it's also his personal favorite Divine film. And he admits that it's better made than Pink Flamingos is, which that's, I think mm -hmm. that's pretty clear. I would agree with that. Yeah. 
I will point out, though, Desperate Living does have a character that was supposed to be played by Divine, but uh, he was doing a play at the time. So the woman who plays the salon receptionist, Vicky, in this one plays the role Divine would have played in Desperate Living. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Before I pass the baton off to you, Joe, I just wanted to point out that pretty much all of Waters' films are 85 to 95 minutes in length. And when asked if this was intentional, Waters said that it was because, and I quote, there is no such thing as a good long joke. <laughs> oh boy so i'm not going to draw explicit reference from it because it's almost better served if you haven't seen the movie and you need to refresh your memory on it but there's a really good book called female trouble by chris homeland and it's part of a queer film classic series it's a ton of interviews with surviving castmates as well as John Waters, but it goes into a lot of the visual aesthetic and like what they had to do to make the movie. And it's mm. quite fascinating. So I would recommend that if you are interested in this film in particular. I will say too, I think John Waters has a few books of his own that I've heard are also very, mm. very, very good. All right, let's kick it off. So yes, we do get a titular theme song sung by <laughs> Divine over the credits. And then we get our first title card because the film is treated almost like a biography of Don Davenport. Oh. So we start in youth 1960. This is where we're introduced to Don Davenport in high school, and she is brash, she is opinionated, she doesn't have a great deal of respect for any adults or rules. I love it. It's This is a good opening to a movie, too. Like it, It's kind of weird, though. It's, again, this kind of weird value of like looking at 28-year-old Divine mm-hmm. <laughs> playing this like 16-year-old girl. <laughs> yeah, and I love it that it, it's not even remotely convincing. Neither no. she nor uh, Kinsetta, who is played by Cookie Mueller, or Chicklet, who is played by susan walsh they all look like mid 30 something adults amongst teenagers and it's hysterical (laughs) it's great but again i mean it's not far off than what we would see in the 80s right Mm -hmm. or 90s or 2000s yeah exactly (laughs) it's really only now that we're getting like 20 year olds playing 18 year olds (laughs) right this is what we call progress folks (laughs) (laughs) did you guys know something about um divine's wig uh as as a young woman no, what's up? So, so everyone, else, every other female in the care in the uh, the cast, their their wig is um, sort of blonde out, and then you see the dark roots, mm-hmm. right? So I'm suggesting that they bleach their hair. Mm-hmm. Hers is like the opposite. For some reason, she has light roots and dark hair, um, <laughs> and it's very strange. <laughs> it's kind of like uncanny for me. Like why, 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 why would a brunette dye her hair darker? But apparently, Don Davenport did. That's just the class that. she is. <laughs> All that class. Well, she probably thinks that it makes her look prettier because mm. Don Davenport is nothing if not pretty. Yes. No, she she is beautiful, and that beauty will only be enhanced by committing crimes. This is true. <laughs> yes. Uh, so early on here when she's in high school, uh, the only thing that Don Davenport truly wants is a pair of black cha-cha heels for Christmas. <laughs> so fucking bad. She really wants those things. <laughs> <laughs> so when this does not happen on Christmas Day, Don knocks down the tree on top of her mother and runs away from home. Okay, but like... <laughs> there's there's a lot going on here. I'm though. underselling it, yes. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, well, because we're also skipping over the entire thing with the meatball sandwich in the classroom. <laughs> well, I can't tell every joke or else we're going to be here for like six hours. You know what? That yeah. is fair. That is fair. Okay, so basically, Dawn is a bully at school, kind mm-hmm. of, and she doesn't put up with anyone's shit. But <laughs> and she's she's part of a little girl gang, right? Yes. That's important. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but this Christmas, uh, I mean, so immediately, too, I love that we have kind of a, not a desecration per se, but a destroying of Christmas. Oh, because this movie absolutely. is nothing if not very much against traditional family values. Oh, good. Yeah. You know, I taught a class on Christmas movies uh, oh. last last semester. And I had this on the syllabus for, for a little while because I, of course, remembered that scene. And then I went back and watched it. And it's like, oh, okay. No, it's just a little too short. About Christmas. Right? It's just a, a scene. So I showed the scene. But um, I do give them a whole unit on queerness and Christmas. Um, so I use Tangerine. Mm-hmm. Um, I use the Jinx Monsoon and, and Ben De La Creme holiday special uh, in that <laughs> unit, uh, which is actually their favorite uh, uh, film of this uh, whole semester. Of but I wanted to read you a little clip here just about why queer people might be antagonistic towards uh, Christmas or why uh, Christmas cinema coming from queers might be more uh, uh, oppositional. So there's a, a critic, Eve Sedgwick, who, who wrote this about Christmas. The depressing thing about the Christmas season, isn't it, is that it's the time when all the institutions are speaking with one voice. They all, religion, state, capital, ideology, domesticity, the discourses of power and legitimacy, line up with each other so neatly once a year. During the holidays, Christmas and the family become one and the same. They are constituted in and through each other. Uh, And thus the concept of queer brings this into focus. In other words, Christmas is queerness's opposite. Right. Very unwelcoming because we don't fit into those traditional values and institutions, right? Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's all sort of about a return to home, right? That that everyone who has left these small towns where they couldn't be themselves has to come back for this period of time. Mm -hmm. Hmm. When you can even see that when Dawn has to come downstairs, right? Like she wakes up and she's Mm -hmm. excited because she thinks she's going to get these fucking cha-cha heels. (laughs) And the first thing her parents do is like, hey... We have a tradition where we want you to sing a fucking Christmas carol with us. And <laughs> Dawn is just like, just give me the fucking heels already. <laughs> I just feel so bad for her mom when she goes to stop her. She's like, get off me, you ugly witch. And she just pushes her to the fucking Christmas tree. <laughs> and she goes, not a Christmas, Dawn. Yeah. <laughs> not a Christmas. Well, because That's her mom is that of upholder of traditional family values, right? Like she uh, wants the yes. perfect Christmas. She wants it to be like a postcard. That resonates with a queer person too, where it's like, uh, oh, you yeah. know, I'd like to, br- I like to bring my partner, or I'd like to talk about my life. No, oh, no, Christmas, don't, don't right? upset Christmas. Not, no, don't upset Grandma. Mm-hmm. Right, you know that that sort of thing. So there, it is a period where queer people need to pretend to be straight too. Oh yeah, how many Hallmark Christmas movies do we have like that? <laughs> oh my god. Well, I think too, it's a good prime. I mean, yeah, this is like the the soft introduction of like, hey, like we're kind of like defiling the, the these mm-hmm. good values these upstanding values the first being christmas because mm-hmm. the film will continually ask us to laugh at more horrible and horrible things as the mm-hmm. movie goes on yeah yeah well especially around the family unit too right right mm-hmm. there's also this underground film tradition you know if you've ever seen uh kenneth anger's fireworks it ends with a christmas tree on fire <laughs> uh, so it is there's something kind of punk kind of underground about this too this the kind of defiling of christmas yeah. Well, yeah, and that, we're actually going to take that a step further. So mm-hmm. Dawn runs away from home, and she ends up hitchhiking, and she ends up getting a ride with lecherous Earl Peterson, who is also played by Divine, but out of drag. So this is uh, what Divine looks like as a man. Mm-hmm. And 
Earl ends up driving Dawn to a junkyard where they have sex on a dirty mattress. And I wrote sex everywhere I read says rape because, of course, Dawn is underage. But the way that this is shot is very... I don't want to say nebulous because there's yeah. rapey aspects, mm-hmm. but also it does look like Dawn is enjoying herself at certain times. Right. Shades of Perdita Durango again. So. I, I was, I was going to say it's just like Perdita Durango, <laughs> which <laughs> I, I didn't think because I did remember this scene as a rape, but you're right. Mm-hmm. Like it starts and honestly, the way that Dawn is reacting, it, it yeah, it isn't super clear how she feels about it. But then when he starts going down on her and we have those, you know, John Waters signature like slobber effects mm-hmm. <laughs> and she's just going, eat it, eat it. It's like, okay, mm-hmm. so you are liking this. So I I, I, mm-hmm. I get why you're like, oh, which term would you use for this? But mm-hmm. yeah, it's also kind of in that rhetoric of uh, 70s porn that right. was, you know, it's kind of fetishized, not consent, but then of course the woman eventually gives over to pleasure. Yes. You know, very much in that kind of mode. Yeah, uh, I always wondered, like, you know, did he? Did someone say "go fuck yourself"? And that's how they got the idea for this scene, right? Well, he he does. Whenever people would ask Divine, or sorry, uh-huh. whenever people would yell that at Divine after this movie came out, he actually would reply with, "I already did that." <laughs> <laughs> that's perfect. <laughs> well, and of course, I, you know, we're programming this as part of our camp series, and I feel like there's something inherently campy about watching an actor have sex mm-hmm. and or rape themselves yeah. mm-hmm. and we can presume that this is still happening on christmas day yes oh, absolutely <laughs> yeah and it looks yeah. so cold <laughs> yeah we would also be remiss to to not address the fact that uh there's a very campy shot of earl removing his pants and you just see this giant skid mark down oh, the i was wondering if you were gonna mention that that's yes. yeah, that was <laughs> Not I don't care about the meatball stuff, but I will talk about skin marks. <laughs> no, that, you know, and that's, I mean, I, I get, it, it's really just those slobbering sounds for me. I mean, <laughs> but, and you say this as someone with a dog. Gross. <laughs> so, yeah, well, yeah, but they don't make, it's like this, like, whenever I'm watching a John Waters movie, if there's, if there's a weird sound effect, I'm like, oh, that's Waters. And I always think, go back to Hairspray, because Hairspray has a scene where Amber's mom is popping her zip. And when um. it pops, it makes this sound it's just <laughs> so big <laughs> they're just so over the top god god all right so uh we don't have another title card but we can presume that it is somewhere around nine months later because we see a very pregnant dawn who is dressed in a lime green dress walking down the street the fashion <laughs> in this movie is a whole vibe right we're talking about color a few weeks ago in scooby-doo and now here's more color <laughs> Oh, man. It's so good. It's so refreshing. (laughs) So Don calls Earl demanding money, and yes, he does tell her to go fuck herself. So she goes to the Hotel Albion, and she goes into labor on a random couch, gives birth to Taffy, and cuts the cord with her own teeth. (laughs) So this birth scene was saved until the end of shooting, because as I said, Susan Lowe, who plays Vicky, the salon receptionist, she was pregnant during all filming, and they waited until after she gave birth, so they could use her baby in this scene, and they they covered it in, like, fake blood, and the umbilical cord was fashioned out of condoms filled with liver. And, uh, yeah, yeah, Divine really did bite that thing up. <laughs> okay, but you're, you're missing the best part, which is that the actress's mother had flown in from England, and she comes to set to see oh, there's my grandchild being held by this drag queen and simulated, like, ripping of the umbilical cord. Uh, I mean, this is just... 
I mean, it's, it's not so the funniest much. thing. It's so good. <laughs> well, here's the thing. If folks are new to John Waters, if you have gotten to this point and you're like, what the fuck is this? It's so <laughs> cheap looking. It's badly mm. acted. You know, mm. I can't deal with this content. This is not for you then. Well, and I think it's important to say, though, I mean, like, I, uh, a reason that we wanted to, to cover this show, I mean, or just any John Waters, is to talk about what camp is right mm. because we, we even are guilty of saying oh that's really camp b or it or that is camp and i think to look at something where th- this is your textbook definition of camp let's mm. have this as a, a reference point moving forward sure yeah for me this is our entry in bad taste camp yeah. where mm-hmm. it is intentionally designed to be off-putting and that is mm. part of the appeal and if you don't get it then it's just not a vehicle for you Right, right. It's also a subcultural code, right? Like, uh-huh. if you don't get the parody, if you don't get um, the exaggeration and, and how, how that's directed, um, then it's probably not your, your style of humor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I can say you can come around on it, though. Like, I found mm-hmm. Pink Flamingos very confronting the first time I saw mm-hmm. it because I had never seen a John Waters film. Mm-hmm. So I was just like, this just seems like schlock and shock for schlock and shock's sake <laughs> say that five times fast <laughs> and here i was just like oh okay no i'm i'm actually really starting to appreciate the nuance and the detail and even the craftsmanship that is going into this movie and it's part of the reason why i think female trouble is a better film because even stuff mm-hmm. like the set design feels really purposeful even mm-hmm. when it is garish and ugly mm-hmm I will say, I mean, like, full disclosure, and like, sorry for all you John Waters heads out there, but Pink Flamingos is my least favorite of the films of his that I've seen, but I've only seen it once, and I have heard that it benefits from rewatches. I just, I don't know, like, because the narrative of Pink Flamingos is so much more, not so much more simple, but it's like, oh, we just have Divine's character want to be the filthiest person alive. There you go, point A, point B. (laughs) This one, I just, I don't know, I feel like there's more of a plot to grasp onto here, Um, and Mm -hmm. and I Andy, as you said, it does get episodic, but I, I enjoy the episodes more because I do right. find them funnier than what happens in Pink Flamingos. Sure, absolutely. And, you know, there, there is a sort of continuity to the script. Yeah. And, you know, it is, a, it is about um, mothers and daughters, ultimately, you know, mm-hmm. and, and the sort of delinquent becomes the mother with a delinquent. Right. Yeah. Well, I think for some of these early water films, too, like, I mean, I will admit for even Female Trouble, I think... As the film nears its end, like the last ten to fifteen minutes, I'm kind of like, "All right, let's 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 end the <laughs> movie. Let's go." Yeah, yeah. And yeah, I felt absolutely. like that for the majority of Pink Flamingos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> so we move into the next stage. We get a new card that says "Career Girl, 1961 <laughs> to 1967," and this is basically just a montage and it's done working as a diner waitress as a go-go girl and as a sex worker on the street and the final part of it is she and the girls beat up a drunk and this transitions into the early criminal stage which is 1968 but okay i do love that when we see the girls that are robbing people in the street because they're supposed to be wearing like you know like stockings on their heads mm-hmm. i still don't know what they are wearing well because they're they they don't want to fuck up their hair mm-hmm. so they're wearing like veils is that what i can't even tell what it is that's what i still don't know i was like what is that over their head so it, it's meant to be what their version of a stocking would be and which would mess up their hair <laughs> i got it i got it <laughs> Hair is very important in this movie. <laughs> All right, so early criminal introduces us to eight-year-old Taffy, who is played by Hillary Taylor, and she is a demanding homeschooled young girl who Don abuses slash disciplines by chaining her in the attic. 
so <laughs> this kills me. So it's just funny to watch her because I mean, this is we're watching child abuse happen, and the film oh, is 100%. asking us to laugh yeah, at it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this child is also the biggest brat. Like she is. <laughs> You almost want her to be disciplined, and oh, then you no, see I, it, and you realize, oh, no, I didn't actually want that after all. Um, all okay, right. but, like, the second they so – watching them take her upstairs, they're just holding, like, one of her legs and one of her arms. <laughs> and then we cut to see that they're about to chain her to a bed <laughs> in the attic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's jokes that could not be made today. Oh, <laughs> God, no. Well, yeah. but I kind of wish they could, you know? Like, yeah, I, know. I, I wish something like this could get released and not, like, like be... I, I know it's going to be offensive to some people, but, like, I feel like now, yeah, people would really um, attack this or lobby against this film more so than they did in the 70s. Oh, right. sure. John Waters himself has said, like, there's a line here that would just immediately cancel the entire movie. Mm. I think it's Concetta. It might be Chicklet. One of them says, I'm so glad I had my abortion. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, and it's so funny because I, I, I couldn't ever figure out, like, you know, why, as you said, you know, four of Waters' films are on Criterion. I was like, oh, I'm surprised they haven't done Desperate Living. And my friend was like, well, I can tell you right now that might be hard because there is a shot of two naked children in the movie that I think might be too much for some people. I mean, I guess it depends how it's portrayed, right? Like, Criterion isn't afraid of controversy as long as it's art. Yeah, the kids are playing doctor in the scene, but then Mink stole in her 10-minute soliloquies walking in going, The children are having sex! And then she yells at the boy, Why are you raping your sister? Oh <laughs> <laughs> See, we're all laughing. So, <laughs> but, uh, Actually, and with the character of Taffy too, so going back to Ed Halter's piece from this Criterion essay, um, he says, Female trouble rejects the American norm of treating the typical straight family as sacrosanct. These anti-family values align female trouble with the sense of the hippie, the dropout, and the homosexual. Uh, Waters and many of the Dreamlanders, of course, were all three. Its humor positions the audience within its outsider perspective. The film's condemnation of family is most heartily articulated through Don's battering of Taffy, at first played by a preteen Hillary Taylor in an outfit mimicking actor Patty McCormick's in the mm -hmm. 19 in 1956's The Bad Seed, and mm -hmm. later by an incongruously adult Minkstall. <laughs> <laughs> How dare it's because It's because she's been a brat. That's why she looks like a 50-year-old woman. <laughs> yes. Look at your face, Taffy. For 14, you don't look so good. <laughs> so mean. And yet hilarious. Yeah, really funny. Uh, so uh, good. I mean, I like Dawn's response to, you know, maybe you should just discipline her more. She goes, I've locked her in a room. I beat her with a car aerial. Uh, what else can a mother do? It's so hard being a loving mother. Right. <laughs> because, of course, Dawn is trying to be a better mother than she had by... Not giving Taffy anything she actually needs to like thrive or maybe even survive. Like, there's a moment later on where she says, Oh, Taffy, we just don't have enough food for you. <laughs> and you're like, Oh, I think Dawn thinks that she's a better mom than the mom she had because that bitch didn't give her no cha cha heels. And yet, you're just like, Dawn, come on. <laughs> I don't know if I believe that though, because she doesn't ever seem for a second to care about Taffy. <laughs> well, I think because Taffy is just a disappointment, right? It's also, in a way, if you want to think of this as a melodrama, Taffy mm. is a reminder of, like, where things start to go wrong with Don. Because mm. Don leaves home, presumably to find something better, and it just immediately winds up with her getting an unwanted pregnancy that she mm. can't. Yeah. Like, it derails her life, which is why she's so excited 
to become a star later on. Oh, with the dashers. <laughs> oh, the dashers. D&D dasher. Yeah. Well, nevertheless, so she she goes and she like cuts up this jump rope and then yeah, <laughs> as Consent and Chicklet are sitting on either side, yeah, she's just like, I'm glad I had an abortion. <laughs> <laughs> so the girls encourage her to get her hair done. They say, you know what will make you feel better? Go to the lipstick beauty salon. It's very exclusive. You have to be interviewed to get in. And this is when we cut away from Dawn for the first time in the film so that we can introduce Ida Nelson, played by Edith Massey. And oh. she is wearing the most amazing <laughs> leather catsuit with like cutouts. And apparently it would take like three people to get Edith Massey into this. And she hated this outfit. And she desperately wants her nephew Gator, who is played by Michael Potter, to be gay or a Nelly, as she says. Uh, so <laughs> she says, I'd be so proud if you was an F-slur. I'm, I worry that you'll work in an office, have children, and celebrate <laughs> wedding anniversaries. The world of a heterosexual is a sick and boring life. <laughs> mm-hmm. that, that, I can hear John Waters saying that line. Oh, yes, because we should note that John Waters, to give everyone an idea of how he would like the lines to be said and at what volume, he will actually act it out for them. Apparently, it always sounds exactly the same. And you just imagine (laughs) John Waters yelling it. (laughs) <laughs> well apparently uh whenever this movie screens uh water says you can always tell where the gays are because they will always howl at her line <laughs> oh my god there's another line later on where she basically says like queer people are the only like normal people and then she's like i don't trust straight people <laughs> oh no it's like uh if you're smart you're queer if you're yes. stupid you're straight <laughs> there we go thank you thank you <laughs> So basically, we're introduced to these two primarily because Gator works at the Lipstick Beauty Salon. So that's where we go to next. We are introduced to hairstylist Dribbles, played by George Figgs. Wink, played by Ed Perenio, as we mentioned, also doing production design on the film. Mm-hmm. And Butterfly, played by Paul Swift. And this uh, salon is owned by a centric couple, Donald and Donna Dasher, played by David Lockery and Mary Vivian Pierce. (laughs) They personally interview all of the new clients at the behest of receptionist Vicky, Susan Lowe. And basically, Dawn comes into this when Vicky says that she thinks the Dashers will like Dawn because she seems especially cheap. It's so funny. Just like, oh my god! Like so many of these lines, you're just like, but you can't say that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, because when they finally is when they bring all the girls to the dashers, (laughs) Don is like, oh my god, look at that one. She's putrid. Get out! And then she's like, right there. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But like one of them has a regular job, so they're just like, no, go go to this other terrible place. Telephone operator, you can go to the go to the wig shop what's wrong with the telephone company (laughs) (laughs) so dawn uh endears herself to the dashers by calling herself a thief and a shit kicker and then she specifically requests gator because of course the girls have said try to get gator so we we just see her getting her hair done and then she and gator are dating and then they're getting fucking married (laughs) 
<laughs> in a cro- I'm sorry, a bush revealing dress, wedding dress. <laughs> and like, this is an actual church that they finagled somebody into giving oh them for the day because apparently he was a fan of John Waters. But it's like, mm. can you imagine shooting the scene with Divine wearing a see-through white gown that exposes her nipples and pubic hair? So I, I will tell you this. This is actually the second time they filmed in this church because they did film a scene in this church in Multiple Maniacs. And what okay. happens in that movie... <laughs> Is that Divine is raped by Mink Stole, but using a rosary inserted into her anus. Oh my god. <laughs> In this church. <laughs> oh boy. Oh boy. Um, by the way, the climax of Multiple Maniacs is Divine getting raped by a 15-foot lobster. <laughs> of course it is. <laughs> I've, seen this, I've seen this clip, yeah. <laughs> like, why, why wouldn't it be? <laughs> What's funny is that that one actually is the only one of Waters' films besides Serial Mom that's really labeled a horror movie. Hmm. But that's just a plot of like, it's like a band of like, almost like a low budget circus who they're like, oh, like, you know, we have a puke eater here. We have this woman, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and then they, they basically rob their patrons at gunpoint and then basically Divine decides to start killing everybody. So she goes on a killing mm. spree. Okay. Have you guys seen the uh, the documentary about Divine? I think it's called I Am Divine. No. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's available to, like, uh, no, not to stream, like, on VOD on Amazon Prime or something. Definitely that. I feel like I've watched it on a streaming uh, channel, though. Maybe Hulu? Yeah. That is where I've seen that that clip from uh, Multiple Maniacs, for sure. I mean, I'll just tell you right now, like, not knowing this was going to happen, it's just like <laughs> a... The lobster just comes into frame, and it's about two minutes, like two full minutes of her just screaming as this lobster comes <laughs> her. <laughs> Gotta get to that 85-minute mark, right? Yeah, exactly. 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 <laughs> it's a long enough joke. <laughs> More lobster footage. There we go. <laughs> we don't have coverage. More lobster footage. <laughs> Uh, Eddie, would you recommend the Divine documentary, though? Um, I would, I would. I, I, it was really, really informative about uh, about Divine's life and and kind of her separate from John Waters as well. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's encouraging to read interviews. Like, obviously, we know who John Waters is because he's such a character, but it's nice to hear that Divine almost sounds like some of the horror icons where you think they might be one thing, and then apparently <laughs> they're just absolutely genuinely warm heartfelt people like all the set interviews that i was reading in the book about this film said Mm -hmm. that you know divine was just like so great with people's kids and really warm and just like quiet and stuff you're like oh Mm -hmm. that doesn't mesh at all with what i would think of this person right absolutely and it's interesting too because i didn't know this about divine but um john waters in one of these interviews is like uh, yeah you know a lot of drag queens hated divine because divine was making fun of them like a lot of her drag like she rejected obviously norms but she rejected also the norms of drag and was doing very much her own thing making fun of a lot of drag queens which is why people didn't like her Hmm. and i thought that's kind of ironic considering how Mm. like prolific she is or i'm sorry prolific he is right well and also if you think about where drag has come now where it's like basically all about reading challenges and like throwing shade at other queens so that you can get more (laughs) Mm -hmm. notorious and stuff yeah hey it's kaylee cuoco for priceline ready to go to your happy place for a happy price well why didn't you say so just download the priceline app right now and save up to 60 percent on hotels so whether it's cousin kevin's kazoo concert in kansas city go kevin or becky's bachelorette bash in bermuda you never have to miss a trip ever again so download the priceline app today your savings are waiting Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price Priceline. Okay, so 
Uh, Dawn is now a married woman. So this is 1969. <laughs> we get another kind of like montage sequence. And this is where we see Dawn catching Gator cheating on her. Ida throws garbage in her backyard. And Dawn retaliates <laughs> by throwing a mackerel at her. This scene where he where she catches Gator cheating on her. Um, so we get a full-on cunnilingus scene. Like, this girl is sitting on his face. We see mm-hmm. his dick and her vagina. But apparently the one, this is the one scene that censors had trouble with um, at the time of the film's release. So they said that the woman could sit on Gator's face but could not move. And they had <laughs> okay. to cut the scene of her vagina showing. But not his dick, weirdly enough. Um, so the censor woman handed John Waters scissors and made him cut the film in front of them. <laughs> wow. Okay. Wow. That's a demonstration of power, right? Well, exactly. It's kind of interesting because I've been listening to Karina Longworth's You Must Remember This sequence, which is talking about like films in the 80s. And a lot of them would apparently get heavily censored by the MPAA. And then the directors would be like, yeah, I'm totally going to make those changes. And then they would just mm. not make the changes and release yeah. the film and no one would catch them. So in some ways, part of me is like, well, at least this woman was saying, no, I need to see you do it in front of me. Mm. Wow. Wow. <laughs> well, I mean, luckily for us, John Waters apparently just keeps everything in his attic or something because right. he has all this footage that he can just add back in whenever he wants. Hmm. <laughs> So uh, one thing we haven't talked about yet is uh, the amount of wallpaper in this movie <gasps> oh, and really? how crazy some of it is. Like, I don't even know what this bedroom wallpaper is. I thought it was like a galaxy, but now I'm looking at it and I think it's just splashes of like spray paint or glitter. I can't tell. I was actually shocked when I read that a lot of these were already existing indoor spaces because right. some of these look mm-hmm. like just cardboard that has been mocked up <laughs> to look like a wall. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Like, especially when we get to the Dasher's kind of office hallway and you're just like, oh, that looks not real. There's no. something super fake about this. Oh, gosh. I mean, they're really interesting sometimes. Like, uh, Edith's um, home is decorated in these oversized playing cards mm-hmm. um, yes. on the wall. I'm uh, just like, that. do they get a deal at a wallpaper shop? Maybe. <sighs> I mean, but my favorite, my absolute favorite room in the entire movie is the one that the Dashers gift to Dawn with the birdcage. Oh, my God. Yes, of course. It's so it's red. <laughs> It looks like a fucking Christmas present. Yes. <laughs> Which is like, I feel deliberate because it's meant to mirror all the things that Dawn didn't get in the opening Christmas sequence. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, but we're not there yet. We're only now just getting introduced to 14-year-old Taffy because it is five years later, 1974. Obviously, she's now played by Ming Stoll. And, and this, is the last, this is the last time jump, by the way. We will always be in this time period moving forward. Correct. Yeah, it's like, you keep waiting for another title card and it's like, nope, this is where we are. We're now. done. <laughs> so our introduction to Taffy is she walks in on Gator and Dawn in bed where they are playing toolkit sex. So we're using a hammer as well as needle nose pliers. Ugh, needle. Yeah. Like, he is fucking her with, by her request, needle nose pliers. This is also where we get the line about, I wouldn't suck your lousy dick if I was suffocating. <laughs> there was oxygen in your balls. And then we oh, also right. get multiple, multiple uses of the R word. Yeah. <laughs> because that is apparently what Tavi is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, this is one of those things where you're just like, okay, the language is completely inappropriate nowadays. Mm-hmm. The joke itself, if we could find a different way of proposing it, like, I almost wonder, would it still work if you were just like, Taffy, you're stupid? 
hey, Taffy, well, you're very dumb. Well, it's, it's, it's about the character, right? Like, the characters from this, you know, from this, like, you know, subculture, this, they would, that's how they would speak, right? 100%. They're very yeah. uneducated. Well, but I mean, okay, like, obviously I know that using that word is way more taboo now than it was in 1974, mm-hmm. but was it considered a taboo word in 1974? I don't think to so. To be honest, I don't even think so. I mean, the number of conversations I've had about YA movies still using the R word in the early 2010s yeah. is astronomical. So, like, this is a, this is a recent, like, maybe five to ten sure. year shift. And so yeah. that's that's the thing for me, though, because for me, the humor in this line is because of that word and how taboo it is. Because it's like, right. oh, they shouldn't be saying that. And so it is funny how, how just cavalierly they drop it. <laughs> And so, I mean, again, uh, we go from, I am not R-word. Oh, yes, you are, Taffy. Look in the mirror. For 14, you don't look so good. It's because you've been such a brat all your life, and all that brat is showing in your face, the face of an R-word brat. <laughs> oh, man. I mean, I think the other, the humor from 1974 of this is just that this is not what a parent would say to their child, no. right? Like, it's so inappropriate right. and so just mean-spirited. But also, you're watching a grown woman who's dressed up in what are obviously, like, secondhand clothes. All of Taffy's outfits are too small for her, so she looks inappropriate, like, mm-hmm. 98% of this movie. Well, and also, like, trying to be politically incorrect obviously was a goal of a lot of Waters' films. because 100%. I mean, we find ourselves in this film alone laughing at child abuse, mass murder, abortion, physical deformity, uh, capital punishment, all drawn out and exaggerated a comic effect. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, we have Divine's uh, self-rape scene, but... (laughs) With skid marks. With skid marks. But, I mean, I I think it's the production designers on record saying, he's like, we didn't have the money to make nice movies. If you wanted (laughs) to get noticed, you had to make shocking movies. Mm. Right. Well, I think to them, there was also just a power in making this kind of anti-establishment films. Like, there's right. a political power to John Waters' films oh, and sure. everything in the exploitation movement. And I think part of this is that especially contemporary audiences were so used to being force-fed, studio-produced mm-hmm. films that are glossy and they look good and they have high production values. And there's a whole other world of films out there that are not interested in replicating that. Right. But it's very confronting. You know, most, you know, avant-garde movements, it's not so much what those artists were for, but what they were against. Yeah. Right. You know, that kind of defines that that kind of energy. Which mm-hmm. I just find refreshing. And again, I feel like, because today it's, I don't know, I, I feel like you don't see a lot of groups or people like that. So it's like, I don't know, I, I, I enjoy like kind of living out that experience through watching films like this. Mm-hmm. Oh, sure. And also, like, we're queer, so we yes. self-identify <laughs> with these like outsiders these weirdos these misfits these deviants like these are our people yeah mm-hmm. absolutely you know and i i go, I go back to this sort of bad seed thing that this film is doing I, mm-hmm. uh, in this kind of baby doll dress taffy with too much rouge on she looks <laughs> to me like what would become a toddlers and tiaras character oh yes. my god yes and, and, and so and i think that this film is actually really prescient because it kind of predicts reality tv in mm-hmm. the kind of here comes bunny boo boo and the sort of looking yep. at people's lives who are more miserable than yours and feeling better about yourself Right. Well, even even even. I mean, the, the, this whole like, oh, crime equals fame equals yeah. beauty. Like, I mean, that that's right. also going into like the true our, our fascination with true crime itself, mm-hmm. right? Absolutely. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah, Absolutely. this film is super prescient in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. and I 
I don't even know that John Waters was really thinking of that so much as he was trying to make a statement about reversing the way that we look at beauty. Well, okay. So here's the thing, because Waters did have a fascination with the Manson murders. (laughs) I was wondering if we were going to talk about Tex Avery. There we go. I was like, when are we going to get to it? Because people are already yelling at us. No, I know. So it's actually really funny because in Multiple Maniacs, one of the plot points of that film is the Divine's character is trying to convince her boyfriend that she is the one that killed Sharon Tate. But Mm. the funny thing is that when they were filming this, they hadn't caught Charles Manson yet. So this was still like in the headlines, like Sharon Tate murder. This is amidst the man hunt for Manson while this is a plot point in that movie so this is another piece from Halter's article but he says the dashers the worse the crime the more beautiful you become mantra while played for laughs is also an expression of Waters' own anti-aesthetic developed via his love of figures like Jean Jeanette William S. Burroughs and Kenneth Anger and inflamed by the director's fascination with the Manson family <sighs> Female Trouble is dedicated to Charles Tex Watson one of Manson's gang of murderers and includes an image of a toy helicopter Watson made for Waters in prison in Female Trouble, the glorification of crime and evil is unmistakably allegorical, a way for all of us to indulge in extreme antisocial sentiments without anybody really getting hurt. Mm. In the upheavals of boundary-pushing comedy, Female Trouble seems to slyly ask for a revaluation of all values, collapsing any distinction between high and low, good taste and bad, beauty and ugliness. These are concerns that run throughout Waters' now vast oeuvre of film, writing, visual art, and other creations, but it is in Female Trouble that his ideas are most fully delineated and most thoroughly embodied by his greatest muse. Burroughs famously dubbed Waters the Pope of Trash. Female Trouble, we might say, is his Summa Trashologica. (laughs) (laughs) Waters has since gone on, by the way, to express regret over um, his fascination with the Manson murders and dedicating this film to them. Really? That's interesting. Because, you know, it feels like launching the, the critique of that's in bad taste at John Waters yep. is kind of pointless. But that, for me, is, it's gross, you know, to dedicate yeah. this film to him. Yeah, and so it, he, he had a 2010 book called Role Models, and he says, I am guilty, too. Guilty of hmm. using the Manson murders in a jokey, smart-ass way in my earlier films right. without the slightest feeling for the victims' families or the lives hmm. of the brainwashed Manson killer kids. That's really interesting. Yeah, because Waters isn't mean like that right right? right, he wants you to be in on the joke and he wants to push you out of your comfort zone but he's not going to idolize people who have legitimately hurt or injured people well Mm -hmm. and i think that's interesting too to watch how in the late 80s early 90s he really latched on to patty hurst who like i mean she's in like three or four of his films she actually plays the mom of one of the kids in cecil be demented too it's really funny Mm. (laughs) because she liked godzilla which makes her a bad person (laughs) (laughs) i actually see a lot of through lines in the way that like crime equals beauty then translates Mm. over into cecil be demented oh yeah yeah, I mean, Cecil B. Demented is a, it's a direct reaction to his time in the Hollywood system. Like, he hated working for the studios. Right. And so he made a studio film mocking studios. <laughs> Love it. Love it. Uh, okay, so speaking of characters that we love to hate, let's return so that we can talk a little bit more about the Dashers. So yes. Dawn is distraught over her relationship with gator it's not working out well so she goes back to her standby the lipstick beauty salon and there she is invited by the dashers to participate as a model in their beauty experiment but we should clarify this is not a sexual thing because they find that repugnant um okay i'm sorry really, i'm gonna like rapid fire through some of this stuff i mm-hmm. love the girl who doesn't want to pay for her wash and her set so they oh take the God. hairdo back <laughs> take that yes take the hairdo back what are you gonna do take the hairdo back i love that 
Respect queer labor. <laughs> Indeed. Although, admittedly, that price point is exceedingly high. <laughs> <laughs> it is well, you can go to the wig shop then. <laughs> yes, exactly. Or, or the Orto industry. <laughs> oh my god. Uh, and I will say that there is a kind of a pedophilia joke. Where we oh, have... 100% there is. Yes. <laughs> I want to play with Sally's six-year-old. Yes. Yes. Ooh, like, oh, that's like, right. She's oh. only six years old. Yeah, I just love playing with her. I wish I was a little girl, which it seems to be more of a, oh, he's gay, or maybe he, he, he he's questioning his gender, but it's right. very much a, we're laughing at this man who wants to diddle a six-year-old. Right, mm-hmm. right. Yeah, it feels like it starts as a pedophilic joke, and then it transitions over into, oh, maybe he's actually an innocent who just wants to play with someone who is, like, as naive as him. But I think you could read it both ways, and it's still uncomfortable. It's super uncomfortable. Very much so. And then, yeah, my my, la- my last, I just thought it was a funny line, is whenever the, 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 she's talking to the Dashers, and they're like, are you still a thief, Dom? Yes, I am. Not as much anymore, but I still rob houses. Yeah. <laughs> because we see them literally bring a TV into her apartment earlier, and they're like, I think we can get 10 bucks for this. I do think it's, I mean, because the reason we have the Dashers, the villains, though, it's, it's interesting that they're the ones that don't like sex, right? The villains mm-hmm. of the film hate sex so that's obviously <laughs> I, I just i love that oh sure and they're also the most established ones right like they represent mm-hmm. even though they're clearly not good people they are still the closest thing we have to an institution in this film mm-hmm. mm, yeah i love too their costumes oh are pretty God, amazing yes. where he's wearing um a collar made out of wig hair mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah <it's> pretty <laughs> amazing <laughs> Even just his fucking mustache, like his handlebar mustache. Right. What are we doing? It's amazing. He's like a Andy Warhol Salvador Dali hybrid. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Oh my god. He is very, very funny in this, and I I remember liking him in Pink Flamingos. It's a bummer, I mean, because yeah, he would die like I think right before Desperate Living came out. Mm. 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 Was he the overdose? Yeah. Uh, Well, well, he died while intoxicated on PCP, and you technically yeah, can't overdose from that, so oh, his okay. exact cause of death is unknown. It's probably oh, an accident, then. Probably so. Uh-huh. Huh. So, so yes, the Dashers decide that they're going to hire Dawn, and she agrees if they will fire Gator. So they do. No hesitation. <laughs> <laughs> So then when she goes home, we see that Taffy is using the $10 that she bribed her parents to get after seeing them have sex. Uh, she is playing Car Accident, which is <laughs> maybe one of my favorite parts of this movie. That's the weirdest thing. Oh, God. M- Mink stole. I mean, it, 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 I love Mink stole. It, it, yeah. it sucks because the, the, the further you get into Waters' filmography, the less he uses her. Mm-hmm. And it sucks because, she, I mean, just a scene like this, she is <laughs> a comedic powerhouse right, right. she is eating this up and in the book that i referenced earlier she talked about what it's like to be her size and acting in a scene with divine who is <laughs> 300 pounds man in a dress who is obviously going to pull focus and she talked about how this scene it was like you just have to go big you have to be the person who draws people to you otherwise your performance will go unnoticed yeah and and unnoticed it is not because mm-hmm. taffy is definitely one of the most memorable parts of this film <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> amazing and Divine comes in and says, how many times do I have to tell you to play car accident outside? Okay. <laughs> Where did you get this stuff? <laughs> that is funny, but it is not as funny as Kathy. I don't want to seem overly bitter, but I'd appreciate it if you would destroy all of his belongings. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, these were just eating the shit up. Like, so fun. It's so good. So Dawn tells Taffy that she needs to clean up because the Dashers are en route for a small, intimate buffet. They're not coming for dinner. They're coming for a small, intimate buffet. You know, I wonder, too, if this car accident scene is a precursor to, or a prequel to David Cronenberg's crash. Oh, my God. (laughs) Uh, he like watched he watched this and was like i have an idea <laughs> exactly exactly <laughs> what if we yes, did but this but made candy. it more antiseptic yes <laughs> right right exactly but is there ketchup used in the film instead of actual fake blood no there just open not. wounds yeah. fuckable <laughs> open wounds that's all we got uh so we use this opportunity to hop back to ida's who we have not seen in a while and gator is there uh she wants to set him up with a gay man named ernie and he is not interested because he plans to move closer to as you mentioned trace the automobile industry in detroit orto industry (laughs) and when he says this she has a screaming meltdown on the floor (laughs) <laughs> and spilling out into the street <laughs> you know again we're talking about these lines that she couldn't remember all of her lines and ming soul's like yeah it was just really weird like he knew that she couldn't say all these lines and he would still give her three pages of single space dialogue <laughs> <laughs> it's like pick it up bitch pick it up <laughs> you're a professional oh wait no you're not you're you not are definitely all. not a professional <laughs> actor i just use you in my movies but also pick it up bitch <laughs> Uh, okay so gator goes to don's place where taffy spits in his face and then he punches don in the face (laughs) so when the dashers arrive she is sporting this fantastic purple outfit but Mm -hmm. also she has a giant black eye (laughs) but that's fine because they like that it's fine (laughs) because all of this trashiness is crazy story i was i was getting on the bus and i just fell into the speed the meter (laughs) Isn't that crazy? It was just Donna walking down their street like, oh, oh, my clothes. <laughs> so the Dashers have brought their camera with them so that they can take photos of this dinner because they are enraptured by how disgusting and poor everything is. We should also acknowledge this film is very critical of class. That is the whole point of the Dashers. So yeah, uh, Dawn is going to make them spaghetti. Of course, uh, Donna does not eat spaghetti. <laughs> but 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 Donald would have have a small portion just to be polite, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. I don't want to put too fine a point on this, but like wh- like thirty years later, here comes Honey Boo Boo. Mm-hmm. Their favorite dish to make was like paschetti with ketchup, right? Right. <laughs> so they watched Female Trouble. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, that's fascinating. And then they built a life around it, I guess, unironically. <laughs> How long until Honey Boo Boo goes on a crime spree? Right? Oh my god. I mean, yes. So Taffy is upset because Dawn does not have any food for her. So she throws the spaghetti against the wall, and Dawn then knocks her unconscious with a chair. And this is, of course, all captured on camera. This is fantastic because they they did the chair in one take, and so you can actually see Mink Soul like flinch whenever Divine first Mm -hmm. raises the chair. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. She actually says it's the one scene of her career that she would go back and want to reshoot because she thinks it's too obvious. Yeah, yeah, but I I do love that we get this awesome (laughs) delivery of of Dawn explaining to the Dashers. I didn't want to tell you this, but my child is R word. A child psychologist told me to beat her unmercifully whenever she acted up, but it's never gone this far before. I hope she's not dead. (laughs) 
And then they're like, let's take a bunch of different pictures. Look happy. Look sad. Why don't you step on her? (laughs) (laughs) But unfortunately, it's cut short because what happens, Joe? Ida shows up and she throws acid in Don's face. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I'm writing this out and just thinking, this is my life. This is what I write. I write about people throwing acid into people's faces, but it's funny. It's so funny. Oh my god! And uh, but unfortunately, what it's not funny is how this makeup looks on Divine's face because it is disgusting looking. It is, and apparently, it would take up to three hours. So oh even though I don't like it, obviously doesn't look great hmm. to a modern sensibility where oh, we're no. watching this in like 4K on the Criterion release. But yeah, I mean, when they didn't have money, this is what they could do, and it was still like an intensive makeup job. God, I would have to think that that's more true for later shots of it because it doesn't it's not covered in blood right it looks <laughs> yes it, it's apparently as it progresses that's when it would take longer yeah oh that makes sense that makes sense it, it just looks like a bunch of like moldy cornflakes that are just put in her face <laughs> yeah know yeah. what it reminded me of mm-hmm. it reminded me of the not zombies in fear no evil yes. but like oatmeal oh zombies <laughs> That's right. Okay, yes, yes. That's that's right. Yes, exactly. It looks just like that. <laughs> uh, except, of course, that movie had a budget higher than $25,000. <laughs> no excuse. <laughs> no excuses. So we cut to the hospital, and uh, her, we're introduced- Her face is wrapped in bandages in a yep. way that seems inhumane. <laughs> it, it's like a fucking film noir where it's like, we're going to get this big reveal. <laughs> Even for her mouth to be open. Nope. <laughs> uh, I do love Donald like bashing that doctor. He's like, I sue and bruise easily. <laughs> So I I love it because the disparity between this doctor and every other character in the movie is mm-hmm. night and day difference. Mm-hmm. This doctor is a real human being and therefore <laughs> does not fit into the world of the film because he's like, why are you people so horrible? Have some fucking empathy. And they're just like, get out of this movie. Oh, yeah. It, it, yeah get out. <laughs> like, I think it's a hilarious juxtaposition because I'm just like, oh, oh, this person's acting like oh, the way a normal person would. (laughs) Never mind. Doesn't fit in with these misfits. Okay, so everybody crowds into the room. They're all very excited to see what her new face looks like. And the reveal is that, yes, she is heavily scarred, but we all talk about how she is incredibly beautiful now. I mean, which one gets a boner over over her look? Right. I forget their names. Princess. One of the hairdressers gets a boner over her look, and and Donna (laughs) is not pleased with that. (laughs) Because <laughs> he, what, he, that thing you have there hanging like an obscene pickle, spare me your anatomy. <laughs> I mean, what's interesting about this, uh, I'm thinking of the proliferation of takes on disability and stuff that we're now starting to have in horror. Mm-hmm. And there's something interesting about the fact that Dawn is, yes, very heavily disfigured. And this movie from the 1970s is saying, actually, you're beautiful. Like, just because you have a scarred face doesn't mean that you have no value to society. Yeah. I mean, Dawn's, Dawn's worth, unfortunately, is measured in how horrible she is as a person. <laughs> but her face is actually not part of the problem. Right. But I mean, isn't that the joke, though? Because they're laughing at these sort of like bourgeois people talking about how beautiful she is. while we know that she's ugly. Well, I I think that is the joke. But I think Mm. kind of like the R word, this is something that has actually like the joke has changed or maybe Mm. evolved. Okay, yeah. 
I, I'm not disagreeing with you at all, though. The joke is very much like, no, she hideous, and we're <laughs> I could cry in the face of beauty, right? I mean, it makes the Mona Lisa look like a number painting. <laughs> <laughs> like, what are we doing? Okay, so Dawn is brought back home, and the Dashers have renovated her house in red and silver wrapping paper. Uh, this, I mean... I'm not even being, like, jokey here. I think this is a gorgeous apartment. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, and I feel like Andy, correct me if I'm wrong, but this mm-hmm. is very much giving me, like, Andy Warhol kind oh, of. Yeah. Like, this looks like an art performance piece. And the fact yeah, that yeah. there's a stage where they then prompt her mm-hmm. to take pictures and pose. I was right. just like, oh, they've turned a domestic space into a mm-hmm. fashion space. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, Andy Warhol put Mylar right on his walls um, so that people were always looking at their reflections. Right. Um, yeah. And, you know, and there's a fun story about um, Warhol. I think it was Chelsea Girls. He he told his, his performers that they were going to do a performance. And what he did is that he filmed them getting ready and he never filmed the performance. Yeah. <laughs> I love because that. Because he, he, he's interested in like the putting on of artifice, right? right? That's what's interested in, not the performance itself. Hmm. hmm. Which kind of applies here because mm-hmm. a lot of this movie is the build-up to the big performance and then when you see it you're right. like what the fuck is this performance <laughs> a lot of fish looking oh, it's a lot of mackerel <laughs> and trampolines oh man just for the halibut of course i mean honestly when you say she masturbates with a fish like <laughs> everybody's just like oh we're talking john waters God, yep exactly say, holy mackerel uh, <laughs> There we go. <laughs> so uh, there's a bit of a darkness here because the Dashers also then encouraged Dawn to use liquid eyeliner, which is <laughs> aka heroin. <laughs> liquid eyeliner. Liquid eyeliner. <laughs> oh, there's something else I wanted to, to mention. Just this whole idea of her being beautiful and scarred is really interesting to me because it's Divine, who in, in no circles would be considered beautiful, right? That, that's mm-hmm. not her appeal, and yet she's been able to become a star based on her sort of lack of looks, her her her, her corpulence, right? All of this yeah. made her a star. So mm-hmm. I, I think that Dawn, or I think that Divine, in a way, kind of did identify with this idea. Right. I could see that, yeah. I mean, we should note in this scene, I would argue she looks fucking amazing. Like, this Mm. is the scene where she's wearing the one-armed dress, and it's, like, Mm. very form-fitting, and I just think the color is amazing on this red and silver background. It's, Mm. I don't know, to me, it is very fashionable. I mean, I actually like a lot of Divine's outfits in this movie, mm-hmm. um, especially especially the one we'll get at the end with the trampoline, with like, it's like, ah, the, the white sequin jumpsuit. Yeah, with yeah. the feathers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like the one that she has, like, silver sequins, it looks like, and, and has um, sort of sheer bell bottoms on it. Yes. Uh, the the turquoise and gold sequin one that she dances around the streets with, I really like that yes. one, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, do we know who the customer was for this film? Because there's some really great costumes. I'm wondering what else they've done. Because, you know, it, on this budget, I just wonder, where did you get all this stuff? Costume designer and makeup artist Van Smith. Van Smith. Yeah. I think he's part of Water's crew. Yeah. So um, around this time, we also learn that there is one final gift for Dawn to unwrap, (laughs) and it is a giant birdcage with Ida inside. 
and the Dashers encourage Dawn to chop off her hand with a glittery axe. <laughs> <laughs> I actually, because I mean, like, you can see the edits here, but I actually think that all things considered, this is edited pretty well mm-hmm. in a way to make this look kind of real. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, I've seen worse than this, for sure. Yes, there we go. <laughs> The problem usually is when they think it looks good, and so they're going to put it on camera longer, you know? Mm. And then you're like, no, that didn't actually it, look it good. It doesn't look good. Just yeah. quick, quick, quick edits, uh-huh. quick edits. Uh-huh. I'm not going to lie, Trace. Uh, I was not expecting to get another hook hand film so soon after <laughs> Drop Dead Gorgeous, so maybe there's something campy about giving someone a hook. I mean, it's inherently ridiculous, right? I mean, no offense to any hook handed <laughs> listeners we may have, and I'm being genuine with that apology, but <laughs> but it's just kind of, it's silly. And also, at the risk of being that viewer that's like, well, what about when they have to use the bathroom? What happens when she has to shit? <laughs> well, she still has one hand. Yeah. I, I, I'm surprised that's actually not a scene in this movie. <laughs> Frankly. I mean, there's something Shakespearean about it, too. It's sort of Titus Andronicus, right? Oh boy. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, at least we don't feed Ida Gator. <laughs> right. That would also I'm surprised we don't have cannibalism in one of these movies. <laughs> actually, that would be kind of funny though if they fed her, they said, Oh, it's fried gator, but like mm. then they were like, But it's actually gator. <laughs> right, exactly. Wait, it's not fried green tomatoes. Right. Oh my god. Uh, see ex- exactly. People forget how weird that movie is. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) This is becoming my new fucking Lizzie McGuire movie. (laughs) Fried Green Tomatoes in terms of endearment keeps coming up. But you've seen Fried Green Tomatoes, right? I have not. Oh, Oh. okay. Well, yeah, there is cannibalism in that movie. Yes, I know. You have told me a million times. To many people. Uh, Yeah. Actually, talk about consent with that movie, right? Like, no one knows they're getting fed human in that movie. Yes. (laughs) Yes. And it's a heartwarming story about a woman's coming of age, right? (laughs) Jesus Christ. It's racist meat. It's fine. But okay, so so Taffy comes in here, <laughs> and I, I, I love Dawn's like first lines. Like, I was hoping the next time I would see you would be at your funeral. You sure look ugly. <laughs> They're just so mean to each other to the point where Taffy says, "You know what? I'm going to go find my father. Tell me who my father is. I'm going to go track him down." So this is what she does. She suggests that she wants to stay with Ernie after she finally convinces him to let her in. Did we mention the the incest taboo being broken oh, earlier? I, I don't mean, remember because yeah. Well, it's it's pedophilia again uh-huh. with incest. <laughs> yeah, one two punch. I mean, it's it's kind of tricky, right? Because Earl is obviously intoxicated. He uh, has not seen Taffy in the entirety of her life, right? Like right. he knew yeah. that Dawn was pregnant, but that's it. Now, with that said, when she does convince him, he still hits on her, and then he <laughs> vomits on her, and so she kills him with a butter knife. <laughs> I think for me, what, what what's gross about just seeing him try to grope her is when he says, Hey, little Taffy, do you stretch like your mother? Oh, that's boy. the line where ooh. I'm kind of like, ooh, ooh that, yeah. no, <laughs> that's, not not gonna, that's, so, that's gonna turn some people off. That's yep. so gross. But I mean, we are supposed to think that Earl is a completely despicable character. Like, we don't have any interest or sympathy in him. And again, even though it is a 14-year-old character, it's still Mink stole in this role. So that to me, if this was actually a 14-year-old girl doing this, like if this was the the Hillary Taylor actress, I Mm -hmm. might be a bit more like, ooh, I'm clutching my pearls at this point, but... 
because it's not. I, I do find this genuinely hilarious. Right. And, and if you don't already hate him by this point, his penis is disgusting looking. That is true, yes. He obviously has some STIs going on. Ugh. He has a stand-in penis. It is not a Gross. divine penis, just a heads up. Yes. Right, right, no, I, <laughs> yeah. But, <laughs> and also, yeah. The, the penis has been treated also with makeup to make it look worse. Yes. Oh, yeah. Like, there, there is, like, herpes sores on the tip. Yeah. Yeah, it's gross. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, he's dead, and that's great. Taffy is... No longer traumatized, apparently. <laughs> well, yeah, she's going to have a, a change of heart and a change of perspective soon enough. <laughs> All right, yeah, so we get Dawn dancing through the streets because she is so excited to go have dinner with the Dashers. That was part of what the fight with Taffy was about. Taffy was not invited. It was N. She was not invited. And, <laughs> and this, this dress is the one that makes it on the film poster, right? I think so. I this think one arm, so. The, the one that I'm thinking of where she's kind of reclining on her side and it's the, the oh, landscape yes. version. Yeah. And, and, and it's kind of a spiritual successor to a similar scene in Pink Flamingos mm-hmm. when Divine is like running down the street and everyone's staring at her and Waters is catching all the reactions. Mm-hmm. He had trouble with this one because he said that people weren't reacting to her mm-hmm. and he thinks <laughs> it's because he, she, he had his scar makeup on so they felt bad for him. They were like, oh, it's a disabled person. We can't stare and laugh at that person. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, because there's no reaction to any of these people on the street. No. The, the only one we get is the guy who, like, kicks out his fake his glass eye, but that's one of one of his friends. <laughs> right. Yeah. Which you can tell because that's kind of like an insert shot. It doesn't look yeah. organic, so. Yeah. Um... Any thoughts on what the fuck the dashes are serving for dinner? I clocked this as mini eyelash brushes. <laughs> They're yes. little mascara brushes. Okay. Okay. Um, I don't even have a comment on it. It's just, I'm watching it like, okay, is she really going to swallow this? Because mm-hmm. again, we all know in Pink Flamingos, Divine yeah. actually ate dog shit. So mm-hmm. what's a mascara brush, right? Right, right. She's going to fear factor this. Exactly. Oh. But I think it cuts. I don't think she actually swallows it. But also, I feel like that would fuck up your intestines. A hundred percent. It'd be like eating pins or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But it's still funny. Um, so they're funny. serving, yeah, um, tools of beauty to mm. consume. I mean, it explains why they don't eat spaghetti, because they eat shit like this. (laughs) (laughs) I don't eat any form of noodles. What do I look, Italian? (laughs) Oh my god. And of course, we we can't do the Baltimore accents, but that just accentuates everything. (laughs) (laughs) Alright, so Dawn returns home. She's got a brand new haircut. Taffy makes fun of it. I think she looks fierce, but okay. (laughs) And this mm-hmm. is when Taffy announces that she plans to join the Hare Krishnas. <laughs> oh Which, I mean, I, I, I honestly didn't know much about this movement, um, so I had to kind of look some of it up. But yeah, I, it was also kind of, uh, I think we're about six years into its existence at this time. Okay, so still topical. It's still topical, but is it cultural appropriation for a white woman to be joining this movement? No, because I think they actively recruited a bunch of dumb, dumb white kids. Gosh. Oh, well, then, th- yeah, that, that might be the thing, right? So she's stupid for doing this. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was the butt of the joke in Airplane, right? Yes, that's right. my cultural reference to it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. Okay, there you go. There you go. <laughs> you know what? If Airplane does it, then it must be fine. Right. <laughs> because Not I speak time. jive, so. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Chump don't want no help. Chump don't get no help. <laughs> oh, my God. My favorite movie. <laughs> Definitely up there for me. <laughs> Uh, okay, so we are up to Dawn's big night. She has a, she talks about it like it's going to be an ongoing thing, but the sign outside very clearly says a one night only show at the Superstar <laughs> Nightclub. <laughs> so 
Taffy has uh, changed into her Harry Krishna outfit. So she's got the orange robe. She's got a nose ring. She releases Ida from the birdcage, tells her to go to the police. And then she goes to the venue where she confronts Dawn in the dressing room. And Dawn, in a moment of fury, ecstasy, exasperation, strangles her daughter in front of literally every other character in this movie. (laughs) I will tell you, though, I, I'm genuinely upset that we lose Taffy, like, 20 minutes before the end of this movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just want more of this character, but I just, <laughs> tell them that my mother, the enemy of spirituality. <laughs> I hate that they let most of her death take place off camera. She, yes. like, uh, drops below the frame, and I'm right? like, oh, Nick Stoll probably acted the fuck out of this. Yeah. I didn't actually think that she was dead. I thought that maybe she had just been, uh, like, strangled into unconsciousness and then she would come back. And I was really disappointed when she doesn't. Yeah, yeah. You expect an insert shot if the character's really dead, right? Mm-hmm. I, I I think I think Dawn's she's finally dead. It's just supposed true. to be the confirmation we all need. <laughs> that's, true, that's true. We don't have coverage, but we have dialogue that will cue the audience. <laughs> she's finally dead. <laughs> <laughs> I do also okay. So I I mentioned earlier that Mink Stoll was sort of the most accomplished professional on the oh. set um, <laughs> in terms of performers. And mm. if you watch the film closely, you can see that she completely changes her body language from the point oh. before she joins the Harry Krishnas mm. and after. So she's like very slouchy and kind of meek. And she's actually far more confident and like ramrod erect when she mm. joins the Harry Krishnas. And it's just like a really interesting choice because if you look at the reviews for the film, critics only talk about Divine's performance, or they say like, oh, it's just a lot of people shouting. And <laughs> it, if you look, the other actors are actually taking a lot of pride, and they're being very calculated in their performances, but it gets overshadowed because it's so big. Right. Yeah. Sorry, that was a long diatribe. So no, for it's, it's good. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how anyone would compete with Divine when she's in the scene. You know? Right? It's just, Oh, yeah. She's magnetic. It's yeah. your eyes just naturally go there. <laughs> okay, so uh, Taffy is dead, which means it's performance time. <laughs> so Dawn comes out. She's in this white sequin jumpsuit. I think this uh, this actually might be my favorite outfit. Okay, you know, with, I do with love her, this one with her mohawk hair yes. and these yeah. like fringe bell bottoms. She looks like a drag Clydesdale. Uh-huh. Well, actually, too, with the mohawk, uh, someone had written that they had the, the waters almost uh, predated punk with this movie. Mm. Mm. It's pretty early for the movement, yeah. For sure. Mm-hmm. So, uh, part of the routine is bouncing on a trampoline, and of course, Divine had to actually go and take lessons to be able to pull this off. <laughs> yeah. She also rips up a telephone directory, plays in a cot of mackerel, and uh, basically fakes masturbation a bunch. <laughs> yeah, she puts it in her mouth. And so, while again, this is not what I would call a horror film, there are some places mm-hmm. that will put this as a horror as one of the genres that this mm-hmm. film applies to. And yeah. going back to my article from uh, Ed Halter, um, he said he starts with a quote from Waters, and Waters says, All my humor is based on nervous reactions to anxiety provoking situations. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to the ideals rather than the action of female trouble to be horrifying. And so Halter continues, This is not to say that horrifying actions aren't performed throughout the film. 
Ida throws acid on Dawn's face, melting it into a hideous mess. In retaliation, the Dashers capture Ida and imprison her in a giant birdcage, and Dawn later chops off Ida's hand with an axe, replacing it with a piratical hook. The climax of such <laughs> visual perversity occurs in Dawn's cabaret act, which begins with her claiming to have blown serial killer Richard Speck, among other atrocities, oh continues with her masturbating in a playpen using a raw fish, and ends with her firing a gun into the crowd after asking who wants to die for art. <laughs> Waters has traced his penchant for cheap gore and movie monster violence to his admiration for horror pioneer Herschel Gordon Lewis, right. maker of early splatter films like 1963's Blood Feast and 1965's Color Me Blood Red. As in Lewis's work, female troubles, grand guignol moments transcend the low-rent nature of their production. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I just, I think uh, it's interesting that, that some people would classify this, or at least apply a horror label to this, only because, well, again, I don't think there's anything that's in the film that's trying to scare or horrify, per se, as Waters says. His ideals, more so than the actions, are horrifying. But that you can see his influences from those kind of low-rent, low-budget splatter movies from the 60s. Yeah. Again, before we even had a true, like, slasher creation in the 70s. Right. You know, there's a, there's a book uh, by William Paul called Laughing, Screaming, and it is about the connection between comedy and horror. Yep. Um, both genres force involuntary reactions from you. Both um, sort of stimulate your bodies. Um, and, and there's a strain of comedy where, um, especially shock comedy, is really similar to shock horror, right? Yeah. It's the sort of jolt and then often laughter from release. Mm -hmm. uh, and so they, they work on... And, and, and both of them, too, are dependent on defining your expectation as an audience member. Yes. Yeah. Well... It's interesting too, though, because I I guess when I'm, trying, when I'm thinking about or the reactions that that horror and comedy put on us, horror to me is more of a visual. Like I'm I'm looking at something gross. I'm looking at something that is, that is horrifying to me more so right. than what the characters are saying. Whereas right. comedy can be both. Obviously, you know, that's why you have something like like Jackass, which is more like oh I'm seeing something that's making me laugh. Sure. Mm -hmm. But I do think that the the dialogue is more of a thing. Yeah, but you know, I, I, in horror, there are t different types of, of horror, right? Like dread is very different than shock. Yeah, right. Is is very different than you know, well, I mean, suspense. But it, so it, they cultivate different things. And you're right. Like a lot of times, we will distinguish in the genre between horror and terror. Mm -hmm. That horror is about the scene, right? It is um, in the in the pendulum. It is the pendulum coming to you. Right. Whereas terror is is what forces you to imagine something, and that's often the engine of suspense. So I think, too, there's, there's different types of laughter, right? The laughter that you get from right. uh, wordplay is different than uncomfortable laughter. It's mm -hmm. different than a kind of guffaw where you lose control of your body. Yeah. Yeah. I would definitely build on that by thinking about, like, awkward humor. Like, mm -hmm. comedy that is so awkward that you feel yeah. like you want to shrivel up and die inside. And there are right. moments that are really evocative of that in horror, too, right? Mm -hmm. Where oh, sure. people get trapped in situations with, like, killers who... They haven't really revealed themselves yet, and yet you know that something terrible is happening. You're just like, oh, fuck, I right. want you to get out of here. And so much of this, too, depends on audience, right, and mm -hmm. your sort of investment. So, for instance, um, one of the, the kernels of my book on the revolting child is uh, my reaction to scenes in The Exorcist. Um, so when she vomits right. on the priest, I know that the film wants me to be disgusted, right? But I think right. it's hilarious. And, and that was part of, like, the investigation. Like, why am I doing an oppositional reading of this film? What is it about my uh, spectatorship and my social identity that causes me to have an oppositional, you know, a reaction to this film? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I kind of settled on it. I think it's my queerness, right? And 
given that this film is is about um, this sort of evil child, particularly an evil child who is normal, then puberty hits, and they turn into a monster, right. and we need to call upon the church to straighten them out. Um, it, it just feels like queer reparative therapy. And so part of my pleasure, part of me laughing when she vomits on the priest is, is my own sort of distaste for the Catholic Church and my own right. mm-hmm. um, and feelings of pleasure at that anarchy. And I right. see that in female trouble too, right? You derive a lot of pleasure from her anarchical stance. Yeah, and I think, too, I mean, like, there's so much that's funny about this because of the taboo nature of it all. But I even mm-hmm. think, too, like, I mean, in, in horror, mm-hmm. like, th- there are, you know, different subgenres. And some are more, you know, torture porn was, like, more controversial because it's like, oh, I like horror, but I don't want to see, like, that. Mm-hmm. Like, it's too right. real or it's too upsetting for me. Or mm-hmm. you talk about something like a Serbian film. Whereas when it comes, it comes to comedy mm-hmm. <laughs> i actually think that the, the most polarizing form of comedy we see today outside of something that is dealing with taboos like female trouble mm-hmm. is cringe comedy i think mm-hmm. that cringe like like I, I can't tell you the number of times i've tried to get someone to watch crazy ex-girlfriend which is a really really good mm-hmm. show on the cw or was mm-hmm. the cw but it is primarily consisting of cringe humor that's just very uncomfortable very awkward and it asks you to laugh at it mm-hmm. but i have i've noticed so many people have trouble laughing at cringe comedy because yes. it's too uncomfortable for them mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. yeah Yeah, I love this idea of like cringe and awkwardness, but also the oppositional reading and like how people react differently based Mm -hmm. on their circumstances. And it actually is a nice segue opportunity to come back into the film because, you know, one of the weird things about this performance is that it's not good. Like it's not even good performance (laughs) art. It's just shit. (laughs) And yet the soundtrack is people thunderously applauding every Mm -hmm. little action, right? And it's easy to imagine ourselves being in this room and either saying, am I going to go along with this? Am I going to appreciate this? Am I finding something different or artistic in it? And I feel like that's actually one of the things that John Waters wants you to do with the entirety of this movie. Like, are you laughing? Are you entertained? Are you having an oppositional reading? Or are you siding with the queers and the misfits and the deviants? Oh, I love that. I love that. So it it does not end well for this audience. Uh, yeah, she does invite <laughs> someone to die in the name of art, and then she just shoots that guy. <laughs> not a blink, too. He's no. like, I do. Bam. <laughs> it reminded me of the singing telegram girl from Clue. Yes. 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 <laughs> My favorite. <laughs> and ten years, that would be like 10 or 11 years after this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Was it, oh, who was it? It was one of the Go-Go's, right? Jane? Yes. Yeah. Mm, fun. So, uh, obviously, someone dying in the middle of an art performance uh, causes people to scatter. The police arrive. They just randomly start shooting everyone. And I was like, oh, wow. Okay. Trace, actually, if we're thinking about another horror film, when we covered 28 Weeks Later on the Patreon audio commentary many months ago, we Mm. talked about how terrifying it is in that moment where the army just starts shooting everyone because they can't tell the humans from the zombies. And in this scene, this is like the comedy version of that. It's like, Mm. we can't tell who the gunman is, so we're just going to shoot everybody. (laughs) Well, until the dash is like, we are upright citizens. Like, okay, you can go. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Because, of course, they, they look the part, so. Yep. Yep. So Dawn flees uh, into the woods where she is eventually sought out and apprehended by the police. And then she is put on trial. So we move into the final stages of this film in a way that I think anticipates Serial Mom as well, where it's very much about the court case. And so we see various characters get up on 
the witness stand, the Dashers lie about what she was doing and who was responsible for things. And Dawn just becomes increasingly more irate. But also, when she gets the opportunity to clear her own name, she basically goes and does another performance piece where she talks about how gorgeous she is. <laughs> it's wild. And I, I, the courtroom scenes are something that Waters puts in a lot of his films. It's not just these two. I, I believe there's a couple more. But um, but he admits that he, he just has a, I mean, on top of his fascination with the Mansons. He has a fascination just with trials because he thinks they're amazing theater. Yes. And he actually believes that if he wouldn't have gone into filmmaking, he would have been a defense attorney. Oh, <laughs> my God. <laughs> but for, for the worst kind of evil, like, he like, he would have been like, oh, yeah, like, I, I wanted to defend OJ. I wanted to defend, like, Charles Manson. Like, he wanted oh. to do that because, again, to him, that is entertaining theater. <laughs> oh, boy. God, Probably Jesus. better that he stuck with uh, making movies. Yeah. Then. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So, shocking no one, Don is found guilty, so we move into the final little bit of this film, which is uh, basically a women in prison movie. So, <laughs> Don is up to her execution day, and she has a girlfriend now, she's kind of a star, all the other uh -huh. inmates really like her, and they value and respect her opinions, so <laughs> it's almost a shame when she's taken to the electric chair because she's a lesbian with Ernestine and bumping pussies is a violation of jail rules. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's interesting the film chooses to have her without a wig in the scene because yeah. it's, it's hard to not see Divine as a man in the scene. Yeah. yeah. Do you think that undercuts the fact that she has a girlfriend then? Yeah, it does. It doesn't feel as queer. Well, but okay, m m maybe, maybe, because I, admittedly, I haven't seen many or maybe any women in prison movies, but <laughs> is there normally kind of like a bald butch lesbian in a women in prison movie? Definitely a butch lesbian, but no, we're yeah. not bald. Not a bald one. I mean, I mean, it's it's weird because you can see the the hair receding hairline. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's it's just hard not to think of her as a man. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I wonder what the, what the what the thought process behind that was. Then I only wonder if it's because we have to get to the electrocution scene, which involves putting the helmet uh -huh. over the head, so they would have shaved right. her. But also, it seemed. I guess there's not that much funny about shaving someone's head before you electrocute them. Hmm. Oh yeah, but you know what? Though I could see it as a missed opportunity. Though. Like if if we, well, no, yeah, I don't know. I I don't know. Yeah. I just wish they shaved it to the point where I don't see Divine's receding hairline. Right. right. <laughs> yeah. Like this is a moment where the artifice of the film intersects with the real world knowledge. Mm -hmm. Well, and I I will say that this is the portion of the film that I find the least yeah. interesting. Oh yeah. I, agree. Mm -hmm. I, I I like the courtroom scene fine. I mean, I like all the witnessing the witnesses, and I think all oh, that's pretty funny. But yeah, th this ending does drag a bit for me, which is the only reason why I don't like have this is a perfect score because i think the, pr mm -hmm. the prison stuff is a bit weaker than everything else it's interesting to me because for uh, for me they're really invoking uh sunset boulevard in this end mm -hmm. right where she says i want to thank all my fans yeah. and it's, it feels like a real echo of norman desmond's lines where she's like i want to thank all the beautiful people out there in the dark and she's looking directly at the camera yeah. at the end of sunset boulevard it's a really interesting right. kind of postwater moment here we too get dawn direct address to the camera as well mm -hmm. but it doesn't work you know it's just not, not, as, not as clever it's too static. I mean, yeah. uh, honestly, the, the, the cleverest part of this inning to me is actually the freeze, frame. freeze frames. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the freeze <Yeah>. frame. <laughs> well, because it's ugly, right? Like, yeah. We're, yeah. we're back to making ugly beautiful. And I think mm. it's funny. It's sad. It's a little bit tragic. And you're just like, what the fuck have I just watched? Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 And it's just frozen on this through the whole crawl of the, the credits. Mm -hmm. She looks like Uncle Fester. A little bit. <laughs> <last scene. laughs> 
<laughs> like I want a light bulb in her mouth. <laughs> but but nevertheless, I mean, I like this as a, as a conclusion to Dawn's arc. Like it seems sure. fitting, it works. I just yeah, in, in terms of all the other things going on in the movie, though, I think this is less successful. At least what, mm. getting across whatever point it's trying to make. Or but maybe that's also just because I'm not you know in 1974 with whatever <laughs> this is trying to comment on. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it it's also just less fun and sensational. Like it's a little bit grim i feel like we knew the film was building to a bad end for dawn but i had hoped that she would go out in more of like a blaze of glory and here it feels almost subdued for who she was yeah Hmm. Hmm. yeah but that that's female trouble female trouble (laughs) (laughs) so it's a lot a lot of trouble oh my god so much trouble well okay so andy why don't you kick us off uh, as the guest of honor What, what are your final thoughts on female trouble you know, I, I really enjoy it. I, I think it has an anarchic spirit that uh, maybe gets lost when uh, John Waters enters into his more studio era. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the appeal of it is it's uh, it's anarchy and and uh, and seeing this sort of divine, this sort of queer force tearing down Christmas trees and destroying yes. heteronormativity. She's like a like a Godzilla on heteronormativity. <laughs> so true. <laughs> Yeah, I I really really like this. I, again, I will I will go on record and just say like you know my favorite is Desperate Living uh, of this early set, which might be controversial because it is the only divine less John Waters movie mm-hmm. of this early set. Um, but I think it's better from beginning to end. But this movie is just ah, it's a hoot and a holler, and I, I'm glad we got to cover it for this and just like really dive into like I mean again a John Waters film because I think whenever we do eventually do Serial Mom Joe, mm-hmm. it's going to be a really fun. <laughs> comparison oh. to see oh, for sure. to see to see unrestricted waters to restricted waters yeah i'll come back for that continuity yeah but um but no i i think this is a fantastic film i absolutely love it and i can't wait to show it to more people there we go yeah i similarly find this very delightful even as a first time watch not really knowing what to expect and just mm-hmm. being constantly shocked <laughs> uh it's a good time but um Instead of trying to provide anything more succinct than that, I'm going to give it over to Amelia Abraham from Vice, who wrote a piece called Female Trouble was the film that taught me I didn't need to have an ordinary life. And in this piece, Amelia says, that's just the thing about female trouble. Its unique brand of trashy camp is, as with all camp, in the eye of the beholder. If you watch a drag queen come acid burn victim strangling her own daughter and smile, you're depraved enough to be welcomed into the John Waters following. If you're offended by his aesthetic or moral sensibilities, well, his job is done. The boundaries of taste have been pushed. (laughs) That's really good. I I don't think there's anything we could say that's going to be better than that. (laughs) So, I will close this out then. Uh, before we announce that we're covering next week, Andrew, mm-hmm. where can people find you on social media? Sure. Uh, so, I have a Twitter, uh, Andrew Scahill, S-C-A-H-I-L-L, uh, that's my last name. And then I uh, have a website where I put a lot of my uh, scholarship and things I'm working on, and that is A-D-S-C-A-H-I-L-L.com, A-D Scahill. <laughs> If you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at HorrorQueers, or shoot us an email at HorrorQueers at gmail.com. Find us on Letterboxd to keep track of all the films we have covered. Go to our YouTube channel with interviews and monthly hangouts. And finally, if you want to chat with other listeners, join our Facebook Horror Queers group. 
If you have a moment, please rate and review us on your podcatcher of choice. And if you want even more content, please support the show by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash horrorqueers. We are halfway through July, so subscribe today and you'll get all this and more. Episodes on horror movie to TV flip-floppers. Um, thank you for that moniker, Joe. <laughs> An audio commentary on the Buffy the Vampire Slayer movie to celebrate its 30th anniversary. And before we close out the month with an episode on Jordan Peele's Nope, we also have episodes on Joe Cornish's Attack the Block and M. Night Shyamalan's Signs to tie in what is, again, hopefully an alien theme in Nope. (laughs) (laughs) We'll find out soon. Attack the the Block is one of my favorite movies. That's amazing. So good. So good. (laughs) But uh, Joe, Mm -hmm. what are we checking out next week? Okay, so we're moving into week four of our summer of camp, and uh, we're actually going to kind of stick in the same wheelhouse. Obviously very campy, but we've name-dropped Andy Warhol, and he has his fingerprints all over this movie. So we're going to stick in the 70s. We're going to watch Flesh for Frankenstein. Ooh, boy. I have only seen this film's, like, sibling, the uh, Blood for Dracula movie, but um, mm-hmm. if it's anything like that, I will just say y'all maybe be prepared for some more provoking content. <laughs> oh, sure. <laughs> but sexy young Udo Kier, Trace. Yes, yes, absolutely. And I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, Joe, this might be streaming on Shudder? Uh, as of the time of recording, yes. There we go. Okay. <laughs> so until then, everyone, we can cross out female trouble. Indeed, and cross out horror queers. 